from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Um, the last couple of months, we haven't, we've been on an amazing journey through Romans 5, 6, and 7, specifically looking at the doctrine of our, our union with Christ. The union with Christ, in my opinion, is one of the most uh, precious and valuable and helpful doctrines in all of Scripture. But sadly, it's one of the ones that's least taught on and certainly uh, under, misunderstood. It's a doctrine, though, that I have, I have come to, to appreciate immensely over the last five to seven years as I've been spending some time studying this and on a regular and consistent basis. Um, it's helped me to understand my life as a believer in numerous different ways. I found contentment and peace in circumstances and situations of life that used to be dominated by fear, by anxiety, by panic attacks. I found encouragement in the battle against sin. In the past, I would dread when trials or tests of my faith would, would come along. And like many of us, I would look for and pray for and ask God for the quickest way out of this trial and this test. But through my understanding of my union with Christ, I've learned to embrace these trials and these tests. Because it's in the midst of those that God tells us that I am at work. I'm at work in your life, building in contentment, building in peace. I use those times to strengthen your faith, faith to refine your faith. Now, I don't go around looking for trials. I don't go around looking for tests of my faith. I don't ask God to give them to me. But when he kindly and mercifully does, I've learned to embrace them and look for opportunities to grow in, in, in my faith and my trust in the Lord in the midst of those. My union with Christ means that I get to allow God and his word to define who I am. Our culture, our society, the media, anybody and everybody, our friends, neighbors, they all want to define who we are as Christians. And sometimes their words can be hurtful, they can be hateful, they can be spiteful, and they can be downright discouraging. They can lead to discouragement, they can lead to depression. I can look at my sin, my repeated battles with sin, and the devil will try to sneak in there and discourage me through that. How can you really be a Christian if you keep sinning like that? But as a believer, as one who's united to Christ, I don't have to listen to those descriptors. Those are not what gets to, do, to define who I am. My, in my union with Christ means I get to allow God and his word to define who I am. So I can look to passages in Ephesians. I can look to passages in Romans and see who God says I am in Christ. And I get to allow that then to, to, to cover me and to reassure me when things don't look good, when life gets tough, when I'm well aware of that battle with sin. I allow the God, the word of God and who I am in Christ to define who I am. And it helps me that battle against depression and discouragement. I've come to a greater understanding of the wonders of the cross through this doctrine of the union with Christ. And it gives me a greater understanding of all that Christ did for me on the cross. 
And all of this, all of this combined has led me to a deeper and greater affection for my Savior. I look forward to and I can't wait to gather with the church on Sunday mornings. We get to gather together as God's people to worship him, to pray together, to encourage each other, to sit under the teaching of the word and to be reminded of the great truths of scripture and who we are in Christ. I look forward to that. It's the highlight of my week, and I wish that that would be the case for you, that you would look so much forward to being here on Sunday that it is a priority in your life and in your scheduling. So up to this point in our study in Romans, the Apostle Paul has given us some great truths about who we are in the freedoms that we have in Christ. And here's just a partial list of what we studied in in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6. Chapter 5, verse 1 said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 6, verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 and 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free, free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. Then we got into chapter 7. We faced, faced some very difficult realities there and struggles that we have with sin. The battle with sin is real. Paul understands that and he lays it out in, puts it out on the table for us in chapter seven in brutally honest ways and brutally honest statements that we can all nod our heads to and agree with. Chapter 7, verse 16, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. How many of us can relate to that? 18 and verses 18 and 19, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, how many of us can relate to that that struggle? Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And this final one in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We can all relate to these cries of anguish, wretched man that I am. How many of us could write that and be our own personal testimony? It can be discouraging at times. We keep doing the things that we're, we know we're not supposed to do, but we keep doing it. And we wonder, will I ever get freedom from this? Am I really a Christian? The thought, am I really a Christian, can creep in if I keep sinning like this. Fortunately, Paul is also a pastor, and he keeps on writing. He doesn't stop at chapter 7. He gives us chapter 8, and he opens this chapter with one of the most incredible, strong, forceful, reassuring, and encouraging word for us as believers who battle with sin on a weekly and daily basis. So the big idea this morning is this. Our union with Christ frees us from the fear of condemnation. The requirements of the law are fulfilled based on the performance of Christ, not our performance. We are now free to live by the Spirit, which gives us the power and the desire to obey the law. Again, our union with Christ frees us from the fear of condemnation. 
The requirements of the law were fulfilled based on the performance of Christ, not our performance. We are now free to live by the Spirit, which gives us the power and desire to obey the law, God's, or God's, God's commands. So let's stand together as I read Romans 8, chapters, uh, chapters 8, verses 1 through 11. If you're new here, we stand out of respect for the Word of God. This is our way of honoring what the Lord has to say to us this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his Son, his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are well aware of the trials and the struggles that we face in life of our battle with sin. And while we can cry out with Paul, that wretched man that I am, you give us this wonderful statement that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. May may we find much comfort in that, Lord. May we find much comfort knowing that our security, our eternal security is based on the work of Christ and not our own. Pray that you'd open this word this passage to our hearts and to our minds this morning, Lord. Speak to us. Encourage us. Strengthen our faith through it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul's cry of anguish, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Dave talked about that last week. Dan did out at the, at the camp out. And that's where we were, were left off. Wretched man that I am. So it should be fresh in our minds this morning. Daily, we are reminded of that struggle with sin, the battle with sin. But in the opening verse of chapter 8 this morning, Paul reminds us and encourages us that while we are still battling sin, it's going to be a part of our lives. There's a greater truth at work in us than, than that battle with sin. And he wants to remind us of that great truth. So as we take up chapter 8 this morning, there is, it begins with the most amazing, comforting, and assuring statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. From the deepest, darkest valley at the end of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, and a couple verses later, what I consider to be the, the top of the mountain, Paul begins this chapter and says, with this, this word of comfort and security reminding us, there is no condemnation. There is no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. 
takes the first, our first point, no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't think I can say that enough. We've got to remember that when we're battling sin. What a wonderful statement that Pastor Paul is making to, to us. I, again, I consider this to be one of the most amazing sentences in all of the Bible. It's 13 short words, but there is nothing but, in, but comfort here. There's reassurance here. There's um, uh, just a, a credible reminder. When I get battling with sin and I get down because of that, I can't lose sight of the fact that for me, if I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation. And this, folks, is what the gospel is all about. In this short sentence, we see the full reality of the grace and mercy of, and love of God towards us in Christ. It's a statement about the perfect and eternal security that we have in Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. No condemnation. If what Christ did for us on the cross didn't take away God's condemnation and God's wrath from us, then what value does it have? This is the very heart of the gospel. Since the fall of Genesis 3, all of humanity has been under the condemnation of God. What we all deserve is God's wrath and fury and condemnation. Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God's command and brought judgment and condemnation on all of humanity because of that. But we haven't done any better. Like Adam and Eve, we too didn't think much of God and his commandments. We didn't seek after him. We didn't worship him. We didn't honor him. We turned away and went our own ways, our own direction. We, you and I, don't deserve anything less from God than his full wrath and fury, the full wrath and fury of a holy and righteous God because of our sin. But God is a merciful God. He's a God of grace. And the greatest demonstration of love in all of history, in all of the universe that has ever been displayed, God sent his son Jesus to seek and to save those who are lost and under his judgment and under his condemnation. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that was expected of us. He lived a sinless life and he became sin. He took on your sin. He took on my sin. And on the cross, he endured God's wrath and the fury of God. He died and he was buried and he was wonderfully and gloriously raised on the third day. That selfless act of love means that for those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have put our full hope and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, there is therefore now no condemnation. The judgment, the penalty, and the condemnation for sin has been forever removed from us. There is nothing else, Christian, that you need in this life. We think we need things, and we think we need all sorts of stuff. We think we need a good job. We think we need a wife or a husband. We think we need savings accounts and retirement accounts full of cash. We think we need shiny new pickup or sports car or minivan. We think we need lots of uh, a nice house on lots of land. We think our kids need to be great athletes or musicians or well-educated. We think we need all sorts of things to make life easy and comfortable for us. We think we need a different governor. We think we need a different president. 
We think we just need to have that Idaho and Oregon border moved about 300 miles to the west. We think we need all sorts of things to make our lives full and happy and joyful and complete and meaningful. And if God has blessed you with one or more of those, that's wonderful. Be thankful and enjoy that blessing. We should live our lives wisely. We should work hard. We should be generous and willing to share. But at the end of your life, there's only one thing that's going to matter. And that's this. Will you be found in Christ? The car you drove, the house you lived in, who you chose to, to marry, where you chose to live. None of that will matter. Who you voted for, for governor or president, won't matter. The only thing that matters before a holy God at the end of your life on that judgment day is this. Are you, will you be found in Christ? That's it. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing we need is to be found in Christ. And many of us may have a hard time connecting uh, this uh, in any significant way with our experiences. We fail to, gra- to fail to grasp the significance of this declaration. No condemnation. Condemnation is something that we can sometimes. Uh, it's hard to to understand what it means. But we can't fully understand what it means to to not be under condemnation if we don't understand what condemnation is and what it means. And it's hard for us at times. To to connect with this, it's hard to fully appreciate. Then, like I said, what, what we've been freed of, if we don't know what it is we've been freed of, we've never been accused of a serious crime. At least, not all of us. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sure there are people who've been accused of some crimes, but for most of us, that's not been our experience. I've never been arrested. I've never been put on, put on trial. I've never been convicted. And I've never had to sit under a judge's pronouncements of some kind of sentence over me. I've never heard a judge announce to me 10 years in prison, 20 years in prison, life in prison. I've never heard a death sentence pronounced over me. Again, there's probably a few that maybe can relate to this, but I guess in that most of us can't relate to that. The truth is, though, there has been an eternal spiritual death sentence pronounced over all of us. Scripture speaks volumes about judgment and condemnation against those who do not know and obey God. Romans 5.12 tells us that our union with Adam, and because of that union, death has spread to all men and all men's sin. We are under condemnation first and foremost, and first of all because of our union with Adam. We have inherited his sinful condition. We are, bar- we are born and are by nature sinners. And if that isn't enough, and it is, God is perfectly um, uh, right to condemn all mankind for what Adam did. But if that isn't enough, Paul writes at the end of Romans 3 that our condemnation is just. Why? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In John 3, Jesus speaks about life and condemnation as well. In verse 16 to 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son, of the only Son of God. 
So we are condemned because of our sinful nature. We are condemned because we have chosen to disobey God and his commandments. And we are condemned because we have not believed and trusted in, in Jesus. The way Paul sees it, the way Paul views it, there are only two ways to classify humanity. The first group are those who are in Christ, those who are united to Christ and are therefore not under the condemnation of God. The second group is all of those who are not united with Christ and therefore still under the condemnation of God. Those who are not in Christ face a terrible and a frightening future. An eternity in hell awaits them. Eternal punishment, the full wrath of God poured out on you for your sin, for your rebellion, your pride, your arrogance, your jealousy, your lies, your greed, your anger, your selfishness. The list goes on and on. An eternity of suffering, pain, and agony, and torment to a level that we can't even begin to imagine. It's our worst nightmare on steroids. And without end. In eternity, time is no value, and there will be no end to eternal punishment. Maybe some of you this morning are fans of Frank Sinatra. You've decided to take some of his words, of his, the words of some of his songs to heart, and you're going to dream the impossible dream. And you're going to stand before God on that day of judgment. You're going to beat your chest and say, I did it my way. That day of judgment is not going to go well with your soul. Frank Renata had a great voice. He was a great singer. He's a great entertainer. But he was not a theologian. For those of us in Christ... For those of us in Christ, there is no condemnation. An eternity in the presence of God, enjoying all of his blessings, is the beneficiary of grace and mercy. An eternity worshiping God, enjoying life without sin. No more tears, no more sorrows, no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering. An eternity of fellowship with God, enjoying his presence, experiencing his love and his kindness. An eternity exploring all of creation. A place of joy and fellowship with God, with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and all of the saints who have gone before us and will come come after us. But the promise here of no condemnation is not a universal promise. It's conditional. The question for all of this this morning is how do I know if this statement of no condemnation applies to me? Paul has spent quite a bit of time in Romans leading up to this point, addressing that question, helping Christians to know the answer to that question. It's important that we do not misplace our trust and our hope and our confidence. Legan Duncan has this to say about the opening verse of chapter 8. He says, what do you, struggling believer... What do you, believer, who still knows the onset of sin? What do you, believer, who still wrestles with the habits of sin, the principles of sin in your own experience? What do you, believer, who from time to time can say with Paul, O wretched man that I am? What is it that you trust? What is it that you trust in that enables you to say, There is now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus? How is it a person? who is very aware of their sin, a person who cries out with Paul, wretched man that I am, how can we have the unwavering assurance of Romans 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for me if I'm in Christ? How can I have confidence that Paul, that the Paul, that Paul writes? How can I have the confidence that Paul so boldly writes about? Paul addresses our concern in verses 2 and 3, two parallel, parallel, parallel verses. 
Verse 2 says, there's no condemnation because in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. And in verse 3, there is no condemnation because what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his son in the likeness of a sinful man to become a sin offering. Then by condemning Christ in our place, the righteousness requirement of the law was fully met. Not for everyone, but for those who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law was not, is not, and will not be able to save. It had no power to do so. So God had to send his son to do what the law could not do for us. There's no condemnation for us this morning. If we're in Christ, it's not because of anything that we've done. There's no condemnation for those in Christ because Christ himself satisfied the requirements of the law. And in these two verses, we see the beauty of the Godhead at work, bringing about our justification, bringing about our salvation. We see God the Father, we see God the Son, and we see God the Spirit all working to do for us, working together to do for us what we could not do and what the law was incapable of doing. We see God the Father. He's the one who's sending his Son to be in the likeness of sinful man, to become a sin offering. And in doing so, God was able to condemn sin and sinful man in order that the requirements of the law would be fulfilled and fully met for those who are joined with Christ. We see God the Son coming in the likeness of sinful man so that he become a sin offering for us, an offering that would turn away the wrath of God, that would turn away the condemnation that we faced. Now, the wrath of God is real and something that needed to be dealt with. And it's our main problem as humans. What do we do with the wrath of God? We have no way of turning it away ourselves. All we do is just make things worse. We make matters worse by our actions and our deeds. Only Jesus, who came in the likeness of man, who became sin on our place, only Christ is able to bear the wrath of God and turn it away from us. We can't do that, but glory be to God that Christ came and did that for us. God the Spirit is seen in verse 2 and verse 4. The Holy Spirit is the one who has joined us with Christ in such a way that we become the beneficiaries of what Jesus did on the cross for us. The doctrine of union of Christ, it's an important one to the Apostle Paul. If you read through his letters, if you read through his writings, over 160 times he makes reference to our union with Christ, either with those words or some equivalent terms. It was an important doctrine to Paul. But getting our heads around what our union with Christ can be, it can be difficult. What does it mean to be, for me to be in Christ and Christ to be in me? What does it mean for me to be joined with Christ? Paul and Jesus understood that difficulty, and they helped us out by giving us numerous illustrations to help us to figure this out and sort it out. In John 15, Jesus compares this relationship to the vine and its branches and how that works together. In communion, which we'll do later this morning, which we'll partake of, he uses the image of eating and drinking his blood, his body. Paul used the illustrations of the head and body and how the head relates to the body and how they work together. He the illustration of a building where Christ is the cornerstone. And in Ephesians 5, he uses the marriage relationship between a husband and wife, the two becoming one, to help us grasp what it means to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. 
And when Jesus, and when the Spirit joins us to Christ, He seals our salvation in such a way that we can take this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can see how it applies to us, how it's made possible, and how it has meaning for me. So these first four verses in, of, of uh, Romans 8, uh, Paul has encouraged and he's reminding us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's reminding us that we have been set free from the law of sin and death, not by our own works, but by the works of Christ. The freedom that we have in Christ, our justification has been brought about by God and God alone. We did nothing to satisfy the requirements of the law. So Paul can encourage us. And he encourages as he begins to lead then into next next section, verses 5 through 8, about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In particular, in verses 5 through 8, he's going to show us a difference. He's going to contrast for us a difference between someone who's in the flesh and someone who's in the spirit. Which takes us to our second point, the flesh and the spirit. There will be a difference between the in the character, in the desires, in the attitudes, and the conduct of someone who is living by the Spirit and someone who is living according to the flesh. So let's look first at, this, at the person who lives according to the flesh, because that's really the person that's in most in focus here in verses 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh are controlled by their human nature, a human nature that is corrupt and enslaved to sin. This person is characterized by an absorption with the things of this world and their so, their own selfish agenda. Some of these things these people pursue may be good. They may be a moral person from the world's perspective, but their life is not lived out according to the law of the Lord. Their life is not lived out for the glory of God. In these verses, Paul the way that Paul describes a person who walks by the flesh could be a little bit surprising to us. He doesn't lay out a group of sins that these people commit. That's not how he identifies them. Instead, he describes them by the disposition of their heart towards God and the disposition of their heart towards the Word of God. Paul begins in verse 5 with this. He says, they have their minds set on the things of the flesh. It's about their mind. Where is their mind focused? Their thoughts, their desires, their deeds, their motivation, their actions. They're all going to be focused on the pleasures of this world and this life. They may pursue sins such as sexual promiscuity. They could be greedy. They could be jealous. They could be pursuing materialism. They're likely to be proud and arrogant. They could also be a very moral person from the world's perspective. They could be kind. They could be helpful. They could be generous. They could be looking out for others. They could be faithful to their marriage. They could be good parents. But what lies, but what lies all beneath that is what matters. These people do not look at the things of life from the standpoint of God's glory, and they are devoid of the Spirit of God, we're told. They are self-centered, they pursue their own agenda, and they have set their mind on the things that will pass away. This way of le- living and thinking leads to one thing. It leads to spiritual death and an eternity under the condemnation of God. Another characteristic of the non-Christian is that their mind is hostile towards God. Look at verse 7. They are unwilling to be subjected to the law of God. This individual is hostile to God, we're told. They oppose God, and they reject his rule and his lordship in their life by doing what they want rather than what the Lord commands. The clear indication of a mind that is hostile towards God is a resistance to his word and to his commands. 
This is a person who may not necessarily be outspoken in their opposition um, to God. We all know a few people who are, are outspoken in their opposition to God. They get angry towards God. They, um, they use harsh words. They get emotional when you talk to God, uh, talk to them about God. But that certainly isn't the case all the time or even most of the time. The mind that is hostile towards God may not be outspoken about their opposition. They simply go about their lives, quietly living their way for their benefit with no regard for the commands of God or his glory. They have constructed their own religion that allows them to make up the rules for life as they go. These people have created their own religion and are convinced that their God will accept them on Judgment Day. The problem is that when that day of judgment comes, their God won't be anywhere to be found. It's the God of the universe who will stand, who we will stand before and the God of the universe that we have to answer to. He's the one who will judge us. Paul continues in verse 7 explaining that the mind of the unbeliever is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. It's not that they just don't do it. It's not that, it's that they can't do it. It's impossible for them to submit to the, to the law of God. Paul points to the heart again and essentially says that the heart that is set on the things of the flesh cannot also be set on the things of the spirit. Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible to be pursuing the things of the flesh and the things of God simultaneously. It's impossible. It's one or the other. There's not a both or third option here. Finally, verse 8, Paul concludes with the obvious. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The individual living according to the flesh who has set their mind on the things of the flesh, those who live in hostility towards God, who refuse to submit to God's law, they cannot please God. That's a strong word. It is impossible. It's 100% impossible for someone who's got their heart and their mind set on the things of the flesh. They cannot please God. Let's go back now and look at these verses again where Paul describes those who live not who live according to the spirit, those who are Christians. He gives only one explicit um, contrast between the unbeliever and the Christian here in verse five. Rather than having their mind set on the flesh, those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. This is not an insignificant um, distinction. It's a very clear distinguishing mark of the true Christian. The Christian is not a person who appears to be religious. The Pharisees were religious, but they had their hearts and their minds set on killing Jesus. Saul, before he became Paul, was a religious man, but his goal in life was to pursue, to persecute, and to kill Christians. Many followers of other religions, we often refer to them as being religious men and women, but their religions are all about setting up false gods and idols. So Paul wants to make it clear to us that having an outward appearance of being religious, knowing the right theology isn't enough. James Boyce wrote this about the marks of the true Christian. He says, much popular Christianity makes this this destructive error, suggesting that as long as you simply confess that you're a sinner and believe that Jesus is your Savior and receive him, whatever that means, you are right and and you are right with God and will certainly go to heaven. Do not get me wrong here. I know that there are degrees of understanding on the part of Christians and that many true Christians are yet babes in Christ. I do not want to deny that they are Christians. 
But what I do want to say is that it is possible to confess those things and still not be a Christian, simply because being a Christian is more than giving mere verbal assent to certain doctrines. It is to be born again. And since being born again is a work of God's spirit, it is right to insist that those who are truly born again will have their minds set on what God desires. So a Christian is not defined or identified solely based on living according to some approved conduct. According to Paul, the Christian is someone who has been born again by the Spirit of God. And due to that transformation, we have our minds set on what God desires. We must acknowledge we will not fully attain those desires. We won't fully attain those standards that God has set. But a person who is born again, who is united with Christ and has their mind set on the things of the Spirit, will strive, will want to strive towards achieving those standards. From this, we can infer that a Christian is one whose heart is controlled by the Spirit. His desire will will reflect the Spirit's work. He's at peace with God because of his justification. He's reconciled to God, and he has a life. He has life, a true knowledge of fellowship with God. He will have a sense of peace, even in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances. Paul seems to enjoy certain dichotomies between the believer and the unbeliever. And in verse 6, he states one big difference between the two. He says, life in the flesh is one of slavery and death, while life in the spirit is is liberation, life, and peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes the difference between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit this way. He says, the natural man, the carnal mind is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. But of the Christian, you say at once, he can be subject to it. He is subject to, to it. He desires to be subject to it. And he goes out of his way to be subject to it. He hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He desires to keep the commands which God has given. So the Christian does, does subject his mind to the law of God. The Christians has a reverence for, a love for, an appreciation for, and is willing to, willing to submit to the law of God. Why? Because the Spirit has changed his heart. We love the law if the Spirit of God is living in us. A mind set on the Spirit joyfully turns to, God, to God's will. The mind that's set on the Spirit will regularly ponder and meditate on and consider the will of God and allow God's will to shape our lives, our decisions, our choices, and our actions. The mind that's controlled by the Spirit will read and study God's instructions. And those instructions then we will apply to all of life, to our marriages, to our, our work, to our parenting, to interactions with our neighbors, to how we deal with our finances, to how we deal with career choices, to how we deal with all the free time that we have, how we worship. Everything is, is subjected to the will of God and to His commands. But the Bible doesn't give clear or explicit direction in all of the choices that we face in life. We aren't told in which night of the week to make tacos for dinner. We aren't told if I should buy a blue car or a yellow car. Nothing about the size of the house we should live in, where we should live. We aren't told who we should marry. And we aren't told which service to attend on Sunday morning, either the 8.30 or the 10.30. It's not there. But the mind that is set on the spirit knows enough about the Bible, knows enough about God's commands, enough about God's will for us, how to live moral and ethical lives 
that we are able to make decisions that reflect the life of the Spirit at work in us. The mind that's set on the Spirit is well acquainted with biblical teachings so that our decisions will be shaped and are shaped by the will of God. And finally, what makes a Christian a Christian? Paul is very clear about that. There's one thing, the presence of the Spirit of God. Either you have the Spirit of God and you live accordingly, or you don't have the Spirit of God and you live according to that. There is no third option. Paul is is very clear about this in verses 9 to 11. And here's his logic. He says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, you will not be controlled by the flesh. The point is clear. Paul's making it clear. If you are in Christ and the Spirit is at work in you, you will live like it. If you don't live that way, then you do not belong to Christ. You aren't a true Christian. An outward profession of faith alone doesn't prove that you are a Christian. Being a Christian is more than simply adopting a set of beliefs about who God is, about who Jesus is, and what he did on the cross. Becoming a Christian is more than simply changing our beliefs. Being a Christian is more than simply living a Christian lifestyle. Sadly, there are a lot of people out there, those who profess to be Christian, that believe this. All I have to do is live a certain way. It's certainly important to live like a Christian. And if you are a true Christian, you will live that way. Paul makes that point very clear numerous times throughout Romans 5 through 8. Having the proper doctrine is important. Living like a Christian is important. But to be a Christian is to be moved from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. It's more than a system of beliefs and a lifestyle. So let's not lose sight of something important here. Paul is writing to the Roman believers and he writes this. He said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He assumes to some level that he's writing to true Christians that they belong to Christ. And he is simply explaining to them what the difference is between a true believer and an unbeliever who's in Christ and who's not in Christ and how the presence of the spirit makes a difference and brings about change in the life of someone who is found in Christ. The Christian is a person, again, who has been moved from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit. One leads to sin and death. The other leads to peace and life. This doesn't happen by us mentally agreeing to a certain belief system. It doesn't happen by making a few lifestyle changes. Moving a person from death to life is only something that God, the Holy Spirit, can do for us. Salvation is of God and not of our own doing. It isn't my choice that's at work here. It's the Spirit of God who does that for us. It's the Spirit of God who brings a dead, someone who's dead, into life. It's all by grace. It's a gift of God. It's because of this, though, that Paul can speak so boldly about the eternal security that we have for those who are in Christ. Assurance of salvation comes to the Christian because our salvation is the work of God. If salvation is based on my beliefs or my lifestyle choices and my decisions, what security is there in that? I change my mind all the time. I make bad choices all the time. There's no security if, 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 if my salvation is based on, on me. But there is eternal security. There's absolute security if my salvation is based on the work of Christ and his alone. And that's why Paul, Paul can speak so boldly about there is no condemnation for us who are found in Christ. 
writing this letter to believers in Rome. In chapter 8, he is wanting to encourage these people. He's wanting them to be encouraged. He wants to give them hope. He wants to give them confidence. To remind them that, that if they are in Christ, their salvation is secure. There is still sin to reckon with. There is still a battle with sin that goes on. And we will find ourselves like Paul crying out, wretched man that I am from time to time. But if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation awaiting for you after you, after you stumble and fall in sin. There is... There should be some guilt. There should be some sorrow for that sin. But there is no condemnation for it. We will get to this in a little bit later in the next couple of weeks. Paul is also going to remind them that if God is for them, who can be against them? If the God is the one who justifies, who is there to condemn? And he will conclude this great chapter with a reminder that there is nothing, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's difficult to read this passage this morning and not be drawn to some level of self-evaluation. If you are in Christ, this is one of the most reassuring and hope-filled chapters in all of the Bible. If you are not in Christ, it should be one of the most troubling chapters in the Bible for you. The promises that Paul presents here are only for those who are truly born again, those who are secure in their union with Christ. And if these, that isn't you, these promises do not apply to you. You are still under condemnation this morning. Your mind is still set on the ways of the flesh. You remained a slave to sin. You were not able to submit to the laws of God. You are hostile to God, and you are in a path that leads to death and destruction. Eternal condemnation awaits and eternity in the enduring, and of enduring the full wrath of God and fury of God is your certain future. So look at your heart this morning. Look into your heart. The question isn't whether or not you are an exemplary or perfect Christian. None of us are. The question, though, is, am I truly a born-again believer? Does the Spirit of God live in me? Am I living a life according to the Spirit or according to the flesh? The works of the Spirit and the works of the flesh that Paul lays out in Galatians 5 are very helpful. And in James, he tells us that faith without works is dead. But in our text today, Paul's getting at something deeper. Is the Spirit of God dwelling in you? Are you alive in Christ? What is your heart motivating? What what is in your heart? What motivates you in your actions and your deeds? In his treatise concerning religious affections, Jonathan Edwards wrote this regarding how to examine the signs of God's work in a person and how to distinguish between true signs of having the Spirit of God. He writes, Great effects on the body are no sign. Fluency and fervor are no sign. That they are excited are no sign. That they come with texts of Scripture are no sign. Religious affection of many kinds are no sign. Joys following in a certain order are no sign. Much time and zeal and duty are no sign. Much expression of praise is no sign. Great confidence is no sign. Affecting relations are no sign. Edwards Edwards believed that none of these on their own proves that a person is alive in Christ. They can all be lived out on emotion, peer pressure, and deception. The sure sign, according to Paul and according to our text this morning, is what is your mind set on? Is it set on the things of the, of the Spirit of God? And if so, your life, your life will be, must be moving in a direction of righteousness and joyful obedience to God. 
If you're here this morning and realize that you are not yet born again, born of the Spirit, there is no time like the present to call out to God for salvation. If God has been kind enough to you to reveal that to you this morning, then he is certainly gracious enough to grant you new life this morning, to bring you out of life and into a new life. Sorry, bring you out of death and into a new life with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of encouragement that Paul writes to the Roman believers. Because we too are aware of our sin. We too are aware of the battle and the struggle that we face. But there are some wonderful truths here that remind us that our salvation is not based on our work, but it's based on the work of your son. And if he has satisfied the law, if he has turned away God's, your wrath, and we are in him, then there is great assurance for us. If there are folks here this morning who do not yet know you, who are still living under condemnation, may this be the day of salvation for them. May you turn their hearts towards you, take them out of the realm of the, of the spirit of the, of the flesh and bring them into the spirit of life. Readjust their thinking, Lord. Take those who are dead and make them alive in Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.